Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Stephen Mercurio, and welcome to my show, The Road Less Traveled by D-Bags. So let's get down to it, Chicos. The wild Clinton years were winding down by September of 1999. However, I was running on tiger blood and didn't even know what that shit was back then. I, along with many other nomadic souls, were by-winning throughout most of Eastern Europe. However, those stories over there will remain untold. That is until we take care of the ones in North Africa. Fast forward to Naples, Italy. It's late September and still hot as balls. I checked into a real crummy, cheap hostel. The place looked and smelled like the kind of hellhole where you could do one of three things. Easily hire a prostitute, shoot heroin, or commit suicide. Frankly, you could score a perfect trifecta without much effort. If you're wondering what I was there for, it was not one of those three options. I was there waiting it out for my boat to leave the port of Naples to sail me across the Mediterranean Sea to North Africa, specifically Tunisia. I had four days to kill in Naples before I needed to be at the port. A five-minute walk from my hostel, there was this lonely-looking cafe that reminded me of a place where lost souls could drink away their loneliness. It was just across from the train station around Piazza Garibaldi. The waiters sported collared white shirts and bow ties and lazily but efficiently moved amidst giant clouds of cigarette smoke, caressing the pipes of a giant espresso machine like a concert pianist. The bar was stocked with everything from fine cognacs to vodkas and of course everything else in between. I had three nights in a wake-up prior to shoving off for Africa, and by the second night, at this gloomy cafe, this old salty barista named Nello and I hit it off quite well. Back then I always had fistfuls of Italian money. You see, before the European Union fucked over countries like Italy and Greece, they were still shelling out lira. It was like goddamn Monopoly money. I was getting rid of as much lira as I could because from what I heard, the North Africans only wanted to deal in US dollars. Big surprise, I know. Nonetheless, I was tipping Nella well. I reckon he was surprised how much vodka I could put down while maintaining a complete focus on the book I was reading, a beat-up bootleg copy of A Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway. Although the pickled state I had been in since arriving in Naples would have been alarming to both Papa Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald. For the second night in a row, this transitionally struggling tranny came prancing into the bar looking for me again. Of course, I was in the exact same spot, drinking the exact same drink. She had pleaded with me the night before to go for a spin on her Vespa, but of course, I respectively declined the enchanting offer. As fucked as she was, there was something so charming and sexy about the Italian language. Yes, even if these spoken words echo from a tall Italian man rocking high heels, prancing around in a skin-tight leather dress. But let's be transparent about her lifestyle. Back in those days, this was not a mainstream and celebrated thing on Facebook. She literally had some big balls to prance around a gritty city like Naples, dancing in drag. Plus, as I mentioned, her transition was not going so hot. Nello placed another vodka in front of me and nodded his head towards the door. She was back. This time she was barefoot and tagging behind her was another really compromised ladyboy. They appeared to be in some type of domestic tizzy. 
who the fuck knows. Once again, she tried to get me to go out, and of course I refused her advances. So, she and her friends staggered out of the bar, and by the time they hit the exit, they apparently had made up because they were giggling and groping one another. Nello shot me a surprised look, and in Italian he asked me why I turned her down. I told him to piss off, and we both started cracking up. He poured a shot for the both of us that tasted like grappa, and momentarily made my throat go numb. Finally, after what seemed like weeks, my fourth wake-up in Naples arrived. I was fighting off a vicious hangover thanks to Nello and caught a cab. I reached the port around 2 in the afternoon. I stood in the queue to board the vessel and was surrounded by exhausted, overworked, and angry migrant workers just trying to get home. I noticed a Japanese girl about my age standing a few meters behind me and dipped back so I could sneak in line next to her. She was Asian retro, and we started conversing in Italian. I was completely flabbergasted by Fumi's command of the Italian language. I was nearly fluent back then, but her Italian put mine to shame. If you closed your eyes and listened to her speak, you would swear she was a local. Some of you may be questioning my multiculturalism. What's the big deal? She was from Tokyo and spoke Italian. Others may be thinking, damn, Stephen, that's a tad racist of you just because she's from Tokyo and speaks Italian? What's the big deal? Well, this is the big deal. I have a question for you. How many of you have ever waited to take a boat from Naples to North Africa and flirted with a Japanese girl who sounded like Monica Bellucci? When I reached the front of the line, I had already made plans to have dinner with Fumi. One of the crew members reluctantly took my ferry ticket and giving no fucks asked me why I was traveling to such a disgusting country. This question was both demeaning and ironic at the same time. Demeaning as he had absolutely no regard for the majority of the passengers' homelands. Ironic as he was calling a place disgusting when over the last several months there had been a garbage strike in Naples. Garbage bags were stacked three stories high, falling on top of the elderly and children. I swear bags of garbage reached the heavens and were tickling the feet of the gods above. I told him I was going to Tunisia to spend time with the camels. He smirked and warned me to be careful about what camels I rode, especially the female ones as fathers will cut your balls off for speaking to their daughters. I'm not sure what was worse, the fact that he made such a degrading joke in public or the fact that I could not stop laughing at it. typical Italian style, a buffet was included in the boat ticket, and yes, it was delicious. A combination of Italian and North African fare, and it was all you could eat. I made three trips. After a full belly and some wine that I smuggled in my backpack, Fumi and I took a seat on the couch in the middle of the foyer. We chit-chatted about everything from our families to geopolitics. Nothing was off the table. We even breached the subject of Pearl Harbor and how a batshit crazy Japanese woman ruined the Beatles. She was great company. Before long, the sun was setting. I could see she was getting tired and decided to take a walk to the upper deck of the ship. The cool breeze and salty mist of the sea was refreshing as I sleepily looked into the Mediterranean Sea. It was at that moment when I heard and felt it for the first time. 
It seemed as if something diabolical had plunged its horns into the port side of the ship. This was followed by a muffled rippling noise. Seconds later, I felt it again. Only this time, I lost my balance. The ship was being pounded by waves and was rocking the boat like the cash bar. At first, I was like, hell yeah, baby, bring it, Poseidon. Within the hour, I regretted challenging the mighty god of the sea. I remained on the upper deck for about a half hour, white-knuckling the railing. The boat was heavily listing and violently rocking non-stop. Soon, all hell would break loose. I made sure to check back on Fumi, who was curled up in the fetal position on the couch we had procured the second we boarded. I gently touched her shoulder, and when she looked up at me, her face was the color of wasabi. I pulled a shirt out of my backpack and poured some bottled water on it to make a compress. I placed it on her forehead, and that's when I began to hear a symphony of yakking. Soon, the crew began distributing garbage bags. At least half the passengers began vomiting. Some were too weak to use their bags and just emptied the contents of their buffet onto the floor. The smell was enough to make even someone with strong sea legs sick. I made a break for the upper deck and stumbled up the stairs in order to breathe fresh air. I had to literally hold the railings of the deck with two hands to avoid being thrown overboard. Surprisingly, a few meters away, I noticed a gentleman leisurely smoking a cigarette and holding the railing like he was riding a horse. He sidestepped over to me and introduced himself as Ali. He was from Egypt, an engineer, and he was going back home to be with his family for a few months. He seemed unfazed by the frenzy that was occurring below deck. He asked me how I was feeling and I told him okay. He then informed me that he overheard the crew complaining that around midnight, the storm was going to get much worse. I asked how that was possible, considering we were not even going through a storm and the boat was being spanked around the sea like a rubber raft. Ali then made a statement that was also a question at the same time. Whatever God you believe in, I'm sure it is Christ, right? Well, stop praying to him. He walked away and I just remained clutching the railings in total disbelief. I walked back to the lower level of the ship and it was a total nightmare. There was vomit everywhere. Garbage bags were scattered throughout the entire boat, most of which had been puked in and were now leaking all over the floor. A majority of the passengers were moaning. Some were holding each other for comfort. Some appeared motionless. I checked on Fumi and she clearly had been vomiting and looked like she was crying. I held a water bottle to her mouth and tried to get her to drink but she just kept dry heaving and then nearly vomited on me. I ran back upstairs, only this time I fell on the floor, nearly landing on top of a bunch of dudes huddled together in real bad shape. Somehow the boat had switched from rolling side to side to bobbing front to back. It was terrifying. You could hear the boat being crushed by the waves. It was close to midnight and I began to realize that it was time to stop praying. I found a spot on the upper deck by a rescue boat and tied my ankle with my belt to one of the support beams. I shimmied behind the rescue boat and blindly reached into my backpack, pulling out the nylon cover of my tent. I pulled it over my head to protect myself from the elements as it poured heavily. I jammed my backpack against the outer wall of the ship and pressed myself against it. I was nestled in securely. After what seemed like hours, the rain was really pounding my shelter and I was freezing. 
My stomach was still good, but I was becoming tired and weak from the constant rocking and thrashing about. I figured that it was around four in the morning. I also felt obliged to check on Fumi. So I freed myself from my encampment and made my way very slowly downstairs. The only way I can describe the scene down there was apocalyptic. The crew was nowhere to be found. There were only about a dozen passengers not puking. Most remained on the floor, moaning and coma-like. Fumi was sleeping, so I went back into my backpack and put a sweatshirt over her shoulders. Then I remembered something. I still had a half bottle of antacid tablets I bought back in Naples. I began going around to the passengers that were semi-coherent and told them that the pills were for seasickness. At first, they didn't understand a word I was saying. Then after my charades, they got it. I distributed about a dozen or so of these placebos, and for the first time, my stomach began to feel a little queasy. I lay down on the floor next to Fumi and for the next few hours fought off seasickness. I fell asleep periodically, only to be jolted awake when the front of the ship rose and plunged violently back into the sea. At one point, I think I collapsed into a deep sleep from sheer exhaustion. I awoke completely disoriented and suddenly had the urge to puke. I was not sure if it was from seasickness or the smell of body odor combined with vomit. I ran upstairs and the first thing I realized was that the sun was beginning to rise. The fresh air settled my stomach and I felt that the sea was much calmer and I could actually stand relaxed and without fear being thrown overboard. Off in the distance, I could see the outline of what looked like a brown haze. This was the very north of Mother Africa. Finally, land. As we got closer to the port of Tunis, the sea was as smooth as glass. The air was warm, the sun was shining. Then something totally unexpected happened to me. There was a gang of men towards the other end of the deck who all appeared to be staring in my direction. At first, a couple of the passengers came over to me and thanked me for the medicine I had given them the night prior. They asked me if I would like to return to their home to share meals with their families and rest for a few days. One by one, every one of those guys thanked me and invited me to their homes. I received offers to go to Algeria, Morocco, and even Libya. I graciously declined their offers but made sure they understood I was honored by their generosity and shouted, Allah Akbar. After I finally stepped ashore, I felt someone pull the back of my tank top. It was Fumi, and after she gave me a hug and thanked me for taking care of her, she tried to give me back my sweatshirt. (laughs) I smiled and told her to take it as a souvenir, plus it most likely had dried puke on it. I reluctantly watched her vanish into the crowd, and then she was gone. Just over a month had passed, and I was flaring with some kind of depression. I would sleep away the morning, wake up, drink a piping hot tea, then guzzle warm beers, smoke hookah, take a nap, get up. Awake midday, I would eat street food, take a second nap, wake up, get ready to smoke my face off and drink piss warm beer. I mean, I had traveled throughout most of the country by now, saw lots of groovy sights, met one or two really nice people, especially Abdul from Bizet. Now that guy was one cool Muslim. Someday I may create an episode of the guy on this podcast. Nonetheless, I was holed up in this pretty meager hostel. 
Of course, there was barely running water in the shower. It dribbled out of the rusty spigot sticking out of the wall like a baby drooling from a new set of molars. There was not a square of toilet paper to be found in the shared bathroom. Like so many other accommodations in public facilities, just a bucket swarming with flies resting under an open pipe. Fill the bucket and let the warm, sludgy water clean your backside while using your hand like a windshield wiper. Can you imagine my absolute rage when so many fucktards were clearing TP off the shelves at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic? I went over a month without the luxury of toilet paper to clean my bum bum. Honestly, at first, it is pretty shitty, but you get used to it after a while. Anyone that hoards toilet paper from the elderly and children needs to have their butt kicked. So it was not surprising that when these two Moroccan beauties loitering at the front desk of my hostel started rapping with me, I was all too eager to make their acquaintance. The girl working the front desk was eager to translate for us. A hodgepodge of Arabic, French, Spanish, and English did the job. They wanted to invite me to a picnic. There would be fresh lamb, couscous, fresh dates, and perhaps even wine. Now, before we go any further into this story... We need to discuss the eagerness of the girl work in the front desk. I had met only a few Tunisians who did something for a stranger, especially a Christian foreigner such as myself, for nothing in return. They always had a fucking dairy secondary gain. Half believing that this front desk girl just so happened to gleefully play matchmaker for a psychologically struggling guy like myself, for no good reason, was just bad judgment on my behalf. Freud could have seen this coming before they even entered the hostel. So of course I agreed, ran back to my room, changed my shirt, which had begun to take on an unpleasant organic smell, fused with several weeks of hookah smoke clinging to it. The three of us waited for our ride to show. Apparently their cousins had a car and they were going to drive us to the picnic spot not too far away. The cousins pulled up in a real shitbox. It looked like a combination of several different car models soldered together into some sort of mutant vehicle. The driver invitingly waved us into the car. Myself and the two Moroccan girls jumped into the back seat. The other cousin was riding shotgun. Now... These two dudes seemed no different than any other Tunisian man I had counted over the last month. Serious yet friendly, a little angry looking, but always scheming for an angle to make money. We drove off. I did not see a picnic basket. Maybe it was in the trunk simmering. After about a five minute joyride, the driver pulled off the side of the road, left the car running, hopped out and walked over to an outdoor vendor. The other cousin jumped in the back seat with us. My host attempted to desperately grab my attention by turning up the car radio and started a dance party. I joined in and immediately started popping 80s style and pretended not to notice the shady business being conducted by the driver. Out of the corner of my eye, it looked like he was buying some food and I noticed that it was wrapped up in some sort of paper or cloth. I also witnessed the slimy vendor slickly and quickly wrap up a couple of large steak knives. He placed the contents into a plastic bag. My inner alarms began to sound, but perhaps I was paranoid and my social skills had been numb since sinking into this funk I now find myself in. We proceeded to drive on and I noticed a sudden change in the expressions of the two Moroccan girls. 
They seem to be no longer in the mood to talk to me or even look at me for that matter. The other cousin remained in the back seat with us and started barking commands at the girls. The driver said absolutely nothing since getting back into the car. My heart started racing and my senses sharpened. I could smell danger. I politely asked in French where we were going. Nobody responded. I asked again and everyone remained mute. This time, I assertively asked to be let out of the car. In that very nanosecond, two things occurred. I suddenly had a vivid flashback of my late dad and I trout fishing, opening day in the early 80s when I was a little boy. The second thing that occurred was that I felt little Jackie in the palm of my hand. Little Jackie was the nickname of the 7-inch jackknife I carried around. I squeezed little Jackie and she almost slipped out of my hand because of how profusely my palm was sweating. I had not attempted to open up little Jackie just yet, as I knew once I did, she would have no choice to strike and strike hard. She had nearly gutted someone in a gay disco a few weeks back if I hadn't talked her down. Now, I yelled, let me the fuck out of the car. My sensory processing was on overdrive and I noticed that we were in a secluded part of town. I also sized up a clear and direct target to the back of the driver's neck as there was no headrest. My neurochemicals were spilling out like Chernobyl except there was no flight or fight, just fight as there was nowhere to flight. Everything seemed to be moving in slow motion when suddenly smoke began to pour uncontrollably into and around the vehicle. The driver momentarily lost control and was forced to blindly pull off the dirt road. I went into action. I sprang from my seat, tried to fling open the door, but it was jammed. I felt arms grabbing me and launched my body against the door. Somehow the door swung open and I could feel someone grabbing at my chest. I launched my fist as hard as I could, felt it connect and crush soft flesh as I made it halfway out the door. I heard a yelp that sounded like a girl. It didn't matter. I was fighting for my life. I managed to break free and ran about three meters when I heard screeching. It was nearly creamed by a speeding taxi driving in the opposite direction. The irate driver started yelling at me, and then I saw the look of confusion and dread in his eyes. He knew I was in the wrong part of town with the wrong kind of people. He motioned frantically for me to jump into his cab. I did without hesitation, and he sped off. He continued to yell and scream at me in Arabic and French, and I could not make out a word the guy was saying. I could tell you one thing for sure. The guy was fucking nervous. I realized that little Jackie was fully opened and had been ready to shish kebab the back of the driver's neck. Soon we were back in a remotely familiar neighborhood in Tunis. The driver let me out and refused to accept payment for the ride. He kept yelling at me, and spit was flying out of his mouth as he drove away crazy fucker probably saved my life. I slowly walked about four or five blocks to my hostel. Lo and behold, the friendly matchmaker at the front desk was nowhere to be found. Certainly, she was involved in the whole grift, probably the one who set the shit up. I crept back into my room, quietly got my backpack together, threw it over my shoulders, and snuck out of the joint through a musty storage room that opened onto an alleyway in the back of the hostel. I left without paying. I'm pretty damn sure no one was going to come looking for my ass, especially the girl at the front desk. It was time to get the hell out of Tunisia.
Join me next time on The Road Less Traveled by D-Bags. Until then, continue to celebrate being offended by offended people.